I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Ryan McLeod, a litigation partner at Wachtell in New York. Ryan, thank you for joining us today. David, thanks for having me. This is fun. Awesome. So we're going to talk a little bit about your background, how you came to focus on Delaware litigation, your clerkship for then Chancellor Chandler in Delaware, and then what it's like to litigate in the Court of Chancery and issues that are particularly challenging for the court now. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to have the practice you do. Well, I stumbled into law school after I decided maybe getting a PhD in classics wasn't the best way to feed myself. I went to Duke for law school, which was a lot of fun, and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really have too many relatives or friends with legal experience, so I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. My degree in undergrad was in English and classics, and that doesn't really translate to business law. So I stumbled into this haphazardly after spending my first summer at Cadwallader downtown in the bankruptcy group and really enjoyed the fact that the bankruptcy courts have equitable powers and equitable jurisdiction because equity felt like the humanities, fairness, gray lines, no black and white, and it called to the inner humanities major in me. So when one of the lawyers I was working with heard I was very into equity, she suggested that I go check out Delaware corporate law because it was all equity. I went back to Duke. I took a bunch of corporate classes with Jim Cox and the rest of the corporate faculty there and really fell in love with it unexpectedly. Ended up spending my second summer at Skadden's office in Wilmington, Delaware. Really liked the work I was doing. Great folks there suggested I look at a clerkship in Delaware. And I was lucky enough that Chancellor Chandler hired me. So tell us about the clerkship experience and some of what you gained from it and why that clerkship is so unusual. Well, that clerkship is unusual, I think, because that court is so unusual. It's a traditional court of equity. It's not a business court, despite, I think, the common perception. So you get a mix of land cases and guardianship cases, you know, the meaty stuff of historical equity, but also all the fiduciary duty law that's equitable in nature, too and for which the court's so well known. It's a really heavy diet of it. It's a very intense trial court. The judges are so smart and work so hard. And the clerks get to work really hard and be around really smart people and see really great lawyers and just make the corporate law for basically the whole of the United States and much of the world. The clerkship I had in particular was most profound to me because my judge, Bill Chandler, is just the best guy on earth and like the best boss you could have. And the best job I'll ever have. And if I could have gone back and been a permanent clerk forever, I would have done it. But it was really, it was a fun year. We had the United Rentals Cerberus trial was my year and Jana versus CNET and Transkaryotic, a lot of these important Delaware cases we had. And it was fun to see. It was right before the financial crisis started. So you started to see some cracks in M&A. Didn't really dawn on me then what my practice was going to turn into for the next few years, but it became apparent once I got to Wachtell after the clerkship. And how has your clerkship continued to resonate for you in the the 15 years since? Well, one thing is I'm still super close with my judge, who's now in private practice at Wilson Sonsini in Delaware. And I talk to him all the time. And if I have a really tough issue and don't know how to deal with something, he's the first person I call. I was chatting with him yesterday. I'm going to see him on Friday. So that's one thing. But more broadly, and what I think most people get out of it is you just see how those judges think, how they actually resolve those issues. There's no juries in a court of equity. So the chancellor or the vice chancellor is the person making all the decisions, finding the facts and the law all at once. And 
watching how they think and how they wrestle with an issue or figure out a way to pose the right questions to counsel to get to the nut of something has really, really been valuable to me as I've gone into my own practice. And how has your your clerkship informed how you think about structuring a case from the time you start working on a transaction, because you often are working on a transaction as a, an advisor on potential litigation, even before the deal is signed, through the filing of litigation, and then thinking about how you're going to present your side, both in written and oral form. You raise a really good point, which is I tell this to my students all the time at Columbia. The, this kind of litigation, transactional M&A litigation, is a place where you get to, if you do it right, make your own record. You know, Most litigators are handed a file. This is what happened. These are the facts. Go make an argument. When you get to be part of the deal team beforehand, you can help craft the record that you'll eventually have to litigate over. So knowing that gives me a little bit more flexibility for what I'm doing. But to get back to your actual question with respect to how the clerkship did it, when you see cases tried, you see that they're really about storytelling. It's each case is a narrative and the side with the more compelling narrative is the one that's going to win. It really gets at the core of what a court of equity is all about. So knowing that you have to tell a story at the end of the day, if you get to be part of the story making or drafting the story in real time, it really makes a big difference. And how do you balance that need to tell a story with the legal analysis that's part of almost every document you would produce for a court as an advocate? I think they go often really hand in hand insofar as the Delaware corporate law doctrine is pretty simple. It's really about when is a court going to get in and have to make a decision about whether something was fair versus when do we think there's enough procedural substance in place that the judge should stay out of it and give deference to the business folks who made the decisions. And so the Understanding that basic legal framework, and when you structure, you know how to structure a transaction to avoid certain levels of review, you know what things the courts are really going to focus on. So you know sort of where to prioritize your attention and energy. You started practicing at Wachtell as a first-year associate in 2008. What were those first two or three years like? Obviously, you're there in the fall of 2008, but then your early associate years, you know, there was financial distress. It was a very challenging time for deal-making. How did that affect the kind of litigation you saw? And have you seen anything like that since, even in the last years? Well, it was a really interesting time. I mean, I think Lehman collapsed about three weeks after I got here. So that was disconcerting. I remember when that building was still green and not blue. So you walk to work one day and the green lights are on and you go home another and they're, they're blue. It was a little different. It was a weird time because M&A was both dead and also extremely busy. There were the bailout deals, the bank rescue deals that took place in that time period. And that was really intense, very difficult deal making that I think pushed and stress test a lot of doctrines about both fiduciary duty law and M&A contracting law. There was development in what's a material adverse effect and development in what is sort of a reasonable break fee or deal protection devices when you have things like a run on a bank going on. And the last year, of course, has brought a lot of that back to the forefront when we're seeing banks fail again and runs on banks that are accelerated now by just how much social media is accelerated in the last 15 years. So it was giving real 2008 vibes a few weeks ago when we were hearing about bank runs. And then you spent a year working for Chancellor Chandler when he transitioned to private practice. What was that like? 
Well, he called me and Tamika Montgomery Reeves up. We both clerked for him. We knew he was thinking about retiring. We obviously stayed in touch with him. And he said he was going to start this office in Delaware. And would we come back and help him get it going? And it was really fun. I mean, it was just the three of us in an office. I mean, what a privilege for me to have two now judges as my colleagues. (laughs) But it was intense because we were doing a real mix of both litigation. We litigated the Boilermakers versus Chevron case about the forum selection bylaw. I actually pitched for that work against Wachtell Lipton and got it. So I'm very proud of myself. (laughs) We also did a lot of corporate governance and advisory work for various clients, but it was a very tight-knit, small, fun experience. It ultimately wasn't the place for me to stay. I missed my friends here at Wachtell, but Tamika went on to become a partner of Wilson Sonsini and then a vice chancellor and then a justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. And Tomorrow morning, I'll be in Delaware for her investiture on the Third Circuit. As you've watched her career, and given how close you are with the former chancellor, does being a judge have any appeal for you? Or do you like having a win or a loss at the end of a case and the competitiveness of litigating? I am uh, attracted to the competitiveness of lit. All my friends will tell you I'm a dangerously competitive person. So there's certainly that. I also think I lack the sort of patience and temperament that Chancellor Chandler and Judge Montgomery Reeves have now. They are both just the most thoughtful, careful, slow to anger, considerate people you can imagine. And I want to fight about everything. (laughs) After you returned to Wachtell, was there a case or even a hearing or a cross-examination where you realized that you really had a command of the knowledge and skills you need to be a great litigator? Well, I'm not sure I have that command even today, but there was a very intense case very shortly after I returned to Wachtell. We represented the board of directors of Sotheby's in connection with litigation brought by Third Point, an activist hedge fund that was trying to run a proxy fight challenging Sotheby's use of a shareholder rights plan or poison pill. And Vice Chancellor Parsons set a preliminary injunction hearing for about 30 days out from when the case was filed. And we had to figure out how to win it really fast while simultaneously doing discovery from 11 different directors across, I think, three different continents, and then write a brief with a legal argument in a challenge to the use of a pill that was a little bit novel of an application because it didn't involve a direct merger or hostile takeover attempt. It was more about this notion of can an activist stockholder exercise negative control by the accumulation of stock. And I think I felt just a little bit more sure of myself because I really had a strong point of view about the way to litigate that case from the beginning and had to persuade the people here who are the true legends at this stuff, like Paul Rowe and Bill Savitt and Ted Mervis, that that was the right approach to go with, which we did go with. And it was what ultimately won us the motion. Talk a little bit about working again as a litigator on the corporate side of transactions as they're being negotiated. What are your corporate partners looking to you for? And how long does it take you to get comfortable in that setting, which would seem very different from a piece of litigation? Well, I think a lot of people think what I do on deal teams is just advise about, don't write that down. It'll come up in discovery or this is the litigation risk. And it's much more than that. It's much more... I think my partners look for me for some thoughts on what do fiduciary duties require? How will a court think about a board making this kind of a decision versus that kind of a decision? What is the frequency with which we should be 
documenting board calls? Should they all be meeting? Should they be this or that? So it's a little bit more advice on how to structure and sequence the governance than it is about the litigation itself. And I guess the way I view it from a litigator's perspective is I'm trying to make my own job easier. (laughs) If there's a lawsuit later on, what would be the better facts that I'd like to have? Talk about your relationship with the lawyers in the plaintiff's bar, because obviously you're across from them, you know, with extraordinary frequency. How do you maintain uh, civility or even friendship when you're constantly opposite one another? And how does that make both of your jobs easier? Great question. The bar that does M&A litigation is pretty small overall. And those of us who do it a lot run into each other all the time, just as you say. And I think some people can underestimate the plaintiff's bar, the folks who typically represent stockholders as being you know, sharks, they're just out to collect fees for themselves. And there are certainly some folks like that, I won't suggest otherwise. But a lot of the folks who do this really care about the development of the law. They have strong points of view about the way governance should be, the way fiduciary duties should be exercised. They put a lot of thought into it. They too engage in scholarship and teaching. And the practice of law can be extremely contentious and difficult for a lot of reasons that I don't need to go into. But one way it doesn't have to be is if you could at least be civil with each other. And It leads, I think, to much better results for our clients because we're able to have more effective negotiations. You know, most of these cases, like every piece of litigation in the US, get resolved without the need for a trial. And managing that process is pretty critical. So I think it's important to maintain a good relationship, not just a good working relationship, but good personal relationships with the folks you see on the other side of the V. I've had Randy Barron come and teach at my class. I went and taught at his class at Penn recently, just as a way of example. But I, I think it's a pretty key piece to helping me do what I try to do effectively. Talk a little bit about the class you and I believe Bill Sabat teach at Columbia. Well, it's Bill's original invention, so I certainly can't take credit for it. He conceived of the idea of a class that actually focused on M&A litigation. And in particular, stockholder suits challenging actions of boards in connection with mergers and acquisitions, and also suits between parties who are engaged in merger and acquisition activity themselves. And so we teach it effectively in two segments. The first part is almost a lecture style. It's like corporations in a nutshell over a few weeks where I get up and try to tell everyone what there is to know about Delaware corporate law. And then the back half of the class is really probably the fun part. We divide the students into several law firms and they go through and litigate over the course of the next number of weeks, various cases where we've made up some facts We have a a session where they strategize with us among their law firms about how to defend their clients or prosecute their claims. They take fake depositions of Bill and me pretending to be various witnesses. They serve interrogatories. They write briefs. Then we have an oral argument at the end of it. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work for the students, uh, for sure. But generally, they seem to really like it. In the fact patterns, do you give them them unresolved issues that you yourself are thinking about? And does that help you refine your thinking about those issues? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get all the free legal help I can get. Whether it's my students or people I'm interviewing for a job, I'm always asking about issues that are unresolved because you never know where a good idea is going to come from. The risk of specialization in this field is you can just start thinking about things the same way. The greatest virtue of teaching that class is I have to go back every semester and reread all the seminal cases of 80s and 90s and the last 10 or or 20 years too, 
just to teach them. And when I do that every time, every time I read Unical, I find something new in Unical. Every time. Drew Moore just dropped all these little great chestnuts in that opinion, and you can pluck them out and think about them in new ways. So every year I get something new out of it. In reading the Delaware cases, it seems that one of the significant changes over the last decade or 15 years has been the far greater quotation of text messages, obviously the discoverability of text messages and emails. How has that changed the litigation and also the case law? I think this one's a little counterintuitive because I think a lot of folks, maybe particularly on the plaintiff side, will tell you, well, this lets the judges see the truth. They can really see what all those nasty directors were thinking about because they get their unvarnished communications. And no doubt that I'm sure that's happened from time to time. But what it actually does, I think, is just make litigation more expensive, which leads to more settlements rather than taking things all the way to a judge. E-discovery is a little bit out of control. We wrote the discovery rules in 1929, and they were turn over everything that's relevant. And that used to be a folder or a, maybe a box in the 80s. But now it's you know multiple terabytes of data. And just managing that and reviewing it is really difficult and really expensive. So I, I think it ends up forcing things out. What I actually think has maybe changed the course of litigation more is the reduction you see in preliminary injunction proceedings in Delaware. We used to have a lot of law made in that posture, and now there just aren't as many of those anymore. So we see many more things resolved at the pleading stage, where all inferences are drawn in favor of the plaintiffs necessarily, and every tie goes to them and every sort of inference goes against the defendants, which is a perfectly... I suppose, sound approach to managing pleadings, but it's not necessarily the best way to advance the development of legal doctrine. What are the most important unresolved issues in Delaware or the ones that you encounter most in your practice and think the most about? I think maybe two things right now are sort of top of mind for me. One is controlling stockholders and what constitutes a controlling stockholder. You know, 10 years ago, I think everyone thought, well, you have to own either a majority of the voting power or get real close to it. Sisev was sort of the most outlier case where the CEO owned 35% and the boardroom and management offices were stocked with family members. But in the last five or six or seven years, you've really seen a reduction of the voting power requirement at the trial court level. The Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on that since 2015, I think. And that's a, a piece that needs some real resolution. The other thing is, what do you do when you have a controlling stockholder? Do you need to have the MFW protections of both the special committee approval and a disinterested vote to bless any transaction involving a controller? Or can a committee work in some non-merger specific transactional postures, for example? So I think those are two unresolved issues that I'm hoping we get some good guidance out of the Supreme Court on. The, The second one is Caremark, which has just really blown up in the wake of the Marchand decision about the Bluebell ice cream listeria outbreak. And in the wake of that case, there's just been really a lot of complaints alleging oversight claims sustained. I say a lot, and I mean something like 10. But that's a lot when you compare to the entire history from when Chancellor Allen wrote Caremark to the Marchand decision, there maybe were two or three. And to have 10 in this latter period is a pretty significant difference. It's leading to a real boom in books and records requests such that big companies are basically under constant surveillance by stockholders through the books and records inspection requests about is something gone wrong and is the board responsible for it? So how do you see Caremark doctrine developing? I don't know. No Caremark case has ever been taken to trial. 
they survive a motion to dismiss, they go through some discovery, they've generally been settled, sometimes at great expense, like in the Boeing circumstance, for example. So again, the case law is made in preliminary injunction ruling. Right. It's all motion to dismiss ruling, as I was saying. So we don't even get to an injunction and none have been taken to summary judgment, none have been taken to trial. So I sort of think at some point, someone's going to have to take that case all the way to let the court develop the law on the back end. Because pleading stage rulings are one thing, but when a judge has to say, no, I find that that corporate trauma that hurt those other people who are not stockholders, the stockholders should recover because it was the director's fault. That's, I think, actually a hard claim to prove ultimately. Right. But because the stakes are so high, they do tend to lead towards settlement. I, I think when they actually get pushed, that we'll see some real development there. Or perhaps the Supreme Court will refine what the pleading standard really is for them. And then what else have you seen change in your time practicing Delaware law that you think is particularly significant? Well, there's more judges on the court now. It's gone from five to seven. I don't think that's changed things too materially, but not in so far the numbers different, but all seven of them are different in the time I've been doing it. Other than my cat, I should say, my cat's name is Vice Chancellor Ivy Cat. She's 16 years old herself, so she's deep into her second term. That every judge is their own universe in a court of equity. And so just having judicial turnover always changes things just because it changes the way you as a litigator need to prosecute or defend your cases. And then finally, tell us a little bit about what you do outside of work. Well, when I'm not here, which is not that frequently, I, I try to try to work out. That's my big thing. I'm not like a fitness freak or anything, but I like to carve out a little bit of time to go for a run or jump on the Peloton. And if I get a little bit more time away, I really love hosting like a dinner party and engaging in what my friend refers to as project cooking. So big elaborate things that no normal sane human would do on a weeknight, but maybe would do if he's decided to take all day Saturday to shop and chop and saute. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.